Chapter 9, Part 4 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 9, Part 4 Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. THE TRUTH OF CHRISTIAN BELIEFS Because of his education and his personal experience, the individual Christian is usually content to let the vindication of his beliefs be found in the practical satisfaction which these bring in his life. But whenever critical thinking is encountered either in the course of one's own wider study or in the utterances of men who doubt the adequacy of Christian beliefs, it becomes necessary to examine more closely the grounds of our convictions. This critical justification of faith is the task of apologetics. The Defense Brought by the Authority Type of Theology Where the task of theology is conceived to be that of reproducing the authorized doctrines, the primary apologetic task is to vindicate the authoritative character of the source from which the doctrines are derived. The revelation to which appeal is made must be shown to be authentic, and this authenticity is, in the last analysis, to be established by an undoubted sign of its divine origin. Miracles, fulfillment of prophecy, and a supernatural inspiration of the biblical writers were the main attestations according to ancient and medieval writers. Protestant orthodoxy laid a special stress on the doctrine of inspiration. The Survival of Older Apologetic Interests if, however, the task of theology be defined as we have urged in the preceding pages, the task of apologetics is changed. But the age-long emphasis on the fundamentals of the older apologetics leads one naturally to fix upon these older interests as if they were primary. It is taken for granted that we must continue to defend as fundamentals the historicity of miracles, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the idea of supernatural inspiration. But what is the relation of modern religious experience to these matters? Does our faith actually rest on miracles today? Or are we attempting to defend miracles by appeal to something more primary? It is interesting to see how former arguments on this question are now completely reversed. Whereas men used to be told that the miracles of Jesus proved his divinity, we are now informed that we may believe the miracles because of our prior belief in the extraordinary nature of Jesus. Whereas men used to feel that the mere presence of a statement in the Bible guaranteed its truth, today we hear such statements as, A thing is not true because it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible because it is true. If miracles have to be proved to a modern mind, the argument for miracles has lost its primary value. Instead, then, of taking the apologetic items of former theological treatises ready at hand, the student should learn to ask the previous question, what are the real foundations of modern faith? Having discovered these, we may then ask why we may continue to regard them as reliable. The Modern Conception of Apologetics Wider historical knowledge has shown that those supernatural aspects of religion which Christianity has emphasized in the past are not peculiar to Christianity. Other religions also have their miracles, their inspired literature, their men with occult powers of knowledge. It is not very difficult to show the critical difficulties in the way of accepting these things at face value in the case of other religions. 
but the very knowledge that this is so makes one more exacting in regard to the evidence for similar elements in Christian tradition. The fact that comparisons can be made leads one to feel that the real significance of Christianity is to be found not in these vulnerable matters, but rather in the spiritual content which men recognize to be of value for its own sake. But the moment one ceases to attempt to vindicate the authority of an entire system of theology, the method of apologetics changes. One comes to see that the inductive method requires us first to ask, what are the real difficulties which people feel today? We can then deal with these difficulties on their own merits. It is evident that from this point of view the task of apologetics cannot be distinguished sharply from that of constructive theology. We have defined the task of theology as the attempt to think over our religious inheritance in the light of present problems, so as to formulate for today and to transmit to the coming generation an expression of faith vitally related to our actual life. Into this constructive task, apologetic questions inevitably enter. Still, there are some aspects of modern religious thinking which deserve special treatment. We may briefly call attention to some of the most urgent of these. 1. The so-called conflict between science and religion. We are today passing out of the period in which science and religion were felt to be hostile to each other. Still, there is much popular uneasiness on this point. It is well known, and usually frankly admitted by theologians, that modern astronomy, geology, biology, and critical history set forth conclusions which conflict with biblical statements. When one recalls the important place in the traditional theological system occupied by Adam, it can readily be seen that the modern doctrine of evolution causes consternation to one who thinks consistently in terms of orthodox doctrine. Again, science sets miracle aside, for the reason that miracle explains nothing so far as scientific control of events is concerned. In short, the tendency of science is to eliminate from our thinking the idea of supernatural interventions. In so far as one's religion is conceived in terms of supernaturalism, science is continually invading the religious realm. The danger of an apologetic which seeks to refute science. The first tendency when one's faith is attacked is to repudiate the arguments of the opponent. Apologetic writers often try to disprove the contentions of science so as to retain the belief which was threatened. But nothing is so fatal to one's prestige as to engage ignorantly in debate with an expert. The student should recognize that in his own field a scientist's statements are based on careful critical investigation. The only man who can successfully debate with a scientist is one who knows with equal accuracy the field in question. Many of the well-meant defenses of traditional belief against new scientific ideas have recoiled on theology with fatal consequences. Take, for example, the many attempts to harmonize Genesis and geology. It does not take much acumen to discover that often a harmonizer is willing to distort both the plain meaning of Genesis and the theories of geology in order to save the face of theology. Such distortion is odious to every lover of truth, and those who have been guilty of it have created a deep prejudice in the minds of scientific men against theology. While many Christians may have been emotionally soothed by superficial rhetoric on these themes, yet the damage done has been great. It is scarcely too much to say that scientific men today frequently believe that a theologian cares more for superficial conformity and rhetorical adjustment than for the truth. Every theological student ought to know at first hand some branch of science. Fortunately, our colleges are more and more insisting on an adequate acquaintance with the achievements of science. 
Theologians in the past have done cruel wrong to these seekers after truth. Attempting to maintain the medieval superiority of theology over all branches of learning, in an age which no longer looks to theology for final information on scientific subjects, Christianity has put itself in a false light. Nothing is more needed today than a frank admission of our faults in the past, and a determined purpose to be fair and truthful in spirit. In an age which owes so much to science, a theology which depreciates science is playing a losing game. The Need of Cultivating the Scientific Spirit There is no better defense of any theory than to show that it rests on a full and accurate examination of the facts. It ought to be evident to everyone that knowledge of facts is constantly improving as humanity advances. We today know many things concerning which men were ignorant two thousand years ago. Instead of assuming at the start that a doctrine which was formulated in the past is absolutely true, and has only to be defended against attacks, we ought first to make sure of our facts. If this investigation results in the modification of the doctrine in question, it is far better to make the modification than to conjure up clever arguments which conceal the truth. If once we shall have come to the point of being willing to go wherever the facts lead, no matter what becomes of our doctrines, we shall occupy a position far stronger than that of the current popular defense. Theology has so long been accustomed to rely on external authority that it is necessary to exercise particular care in order to meet modern questions in a way which will convince men accustomed to scientific exactness. The Rights of Religious Faith When scientific research has done all within its power, there remains the realm in which exact knowledge is impossible. Here, conjecture and hypothesis supplement the verified conclusions of science. Not only does intellectual curiosity impel one to imagine possible conditions in this larger world, practical considerations also demand some hypothesis as a basis of action. Thus, all sciences have their philosophical theories on the basis of which practical attitudes are possible. The assumptions of the indestructibility of matter and of the uniformity of nature are hypotheses which serve to guide practical experiments and to establish confidence in the reliability of such experiments. The scientist trusts nature to behave in certain ways. In similar fashion, the practical spiritual interests of men demand faith that the universe is of such a character as to justify those higher spiritual activities which find expression in religious and moral life. Strictly speaking, one cannot prove the existence of God, but neither can one disprove it. One may decline to pass beyond the limits of what science may say concerning the world, but if so, one should refrain from anti-theistic hypotheses as well as from theistic theories. As a matter of fact, the interests of life are too complex and too big to be satisfied without recourse to some kind of faith. The Christian has only to ask whether his particular extra-scientific philosophy is as respectable and as compatible with what we surely know as any other type of speculative thinking. Some Necessary Distinctions Much confusion is often caused by failure to understand just what the limits of criticism are. To challenge a belief is easy in any realm. One may challenge the doctrine of the bacterial origin of certain diseases, or the doctrine that there is a real material world. But a challenge is of little significance unless it is followed by some explanation which is more adequate than the one which is questioned. 
the theologian is well aware of critical difficulties in the way of a complete demonstration of the truth of many of the doctrines of Christian faith. He should welcome any discussion which helps to an understanding of these difficulties. But he has also the right to demand that one who objects to his solution of the questions at issue shall have thought as carefully as he has himself, and be ready to propose an alternative to the theological doctrine which shall be as respectable intellectually from all points of view. Many so-called scientific objections, when carefully analyzed, betray too superficial knowledge of all the problems involved to deserve serious question. Here one might well study the careful analysis given by Romains on the basis of what he calls impartial, as contrasted with prejudiced, agnosticism, in his Thoughts on Religion. He felt that his earlier objections to religious beliefs had been due to superficial considerations. Another important distinction which should be made is between the purpose of science and the purpose of religion. Science is concerned to interpret reality in terms of exact cause and effect, so as to be able to control the processes of nature mechanically. The more exactly mechanical its formulas are, the more exact is the science. Thus there is a constant pressure to include as much as possible under the laws of physical activity. A world completely mechanized would be a world completely explained, so far as science is concerned. Religion, on the other hand, is concerned to interpret the world so as to emphasize those aspects of reality which justify man in his desire to establish relations of trust and love and moral confidence between himself and the world process. Spiritual meanings are of supreme importance for the theologian. They lie outside the realm of the scientist's particular purpose. Now, the scientist is likely to have only his technical aims in mind in his attacks on religion. He objects to religious formulations because they do not signify anything for scientific purposes. But the obvious answer to this objection is that religion is using its doctrines not for scientific, but for religious purposes. Theological statements, like literary or artistic creations, are to be evaluated by asking whether they promote the rightful interests of the spiritual life of man. The only requirement which science has a right to make is that these statements shall be such as not to compel a man to be untrue to the requirements of scientific honesty. In short, hypotheses and symbolic statements are entirely legitimate so long as they are compatible with scientific veracity. They need not conform to the norms of technical science, for the simple reason that they are intended for another purpose. If it be granted that man rightly demands a spiritual interpretation of his environment, as well as knowledge of the technique of mechanical control, a theology which proceeds by the methods urged in the foregoing pages ought not to have great difficulty in coming to terms with a scientifically open-minded science. 2. The ontological problem. Serious difficulty is caused for religious thinking by the fact that critical epistemology seems to make impossible the affirmation of reality in the older sense of the term. The scientific spirit involves a radical modification of traditional realism. The scientist today regards his statements as working hypotheses rather than as realistic descriptions. He values them because of their practical efficiency in enabling him to deal with the world in which he lives. He may find symbolic representations actually more efficient than descriptive language. For example, mathematical formulas may be preferable to descriptive statements. The scientist has learned to combine an ontological agnosticism with a practically optimistic method of trusting in hypotheses.
the objective significance of a tenable hypothesis. It is important for the student to recognize that a hypothesis is not merely a mental creation. A hypothesis is an instrument for exploring the reality of our environment. If it is a hypothesis which works, it actually enables us to establish definite relations with our environment and to receive into our experience the increment which comes from such relationship. The theory of gravitation is a hypothesis, but it is a means of enabling us to deal definitely and consistently with the real world. In short, there is an ontological reference in any hypothesis which is found to be tenable on critical grounds. To be sure, we do not have the older sort of static and finished ontology, but neither is the content of a hypothesis as subjective a thing as it is often supposed to be by those who distrust the empirical spirit. The Problem of Religious Certainty It must be admitted that this attitude is very different from that of traditional theology. The certainties derived from revelation have been sharply contrasted with the uncertainties of human thinking. The positive vigor of religious faith has been assumed to be indissolubly connected with reliance on an infallible declaration of God. In contrast to this position, the proposal to exercise a practical trust in religious hypotheses seems to those who have been educated in the traditional way to be weak and unsatisfactory. Such hypotheses are frequently represented as mere human creations. Religious convictions, it is held, should embody eternal, unchangeable truth. The type of assurance compatible with the scientific spirit. If it be realized that a hypothesis concerning God may be the most fruitful practical means of establishing real relationship between the life of man and that mysterious ultimate which we call God, theology will be relieved of a burden which is fast becoming unendurable. There is no more fundamental need today than that of a way of formulating religious faith which shall allow men who cannot honestly start from the absolute certainties provided by the older theology to work their way into a vital religious life, building up their own ideas as they go along. We readily admit that imperfect conceptions of God in the past have been stepping stones to a richer and fuller religious life, with its better theological conceptions. May not tentative theories held by men today be also a means of appreciating objective reality? As experience grows, our hypotheses also develop. But at every point in the development, we are actually establishing some sort of relationship with the universe in which we must live. In the place of the older kind of assurance, which declared that God's absolute word had been proclaimed to us in final form, we must develop a type of assurance which looks confidently toward the establishment of truer dynamic relationships with God through the practical experience of using the best conceptions we have, while striving always for better ones if these are to be found. It is the duty of theologians today to show the positive side of this experimental attitude. Its negative aspects, as contrasted with the older type of assurance, have been so emphasized both by orthodox theologians and more recently by Richlians, that apologetics has been placed in a difficult position. What is worse, multitudes of modern men who cannot honestly assume the attitude of absolute certainty supposedly demanded by Christianity have felt that they have no place in the modern church. If the method of appeal to an infallible revelation be abandoned, all doctrines must be related to human experience for their justification. Now, experience is unceasingly experimenting, living, indeed, 
on hypotheses which have proved their efficacy in human life, but it is ever eager for better means of establishing vital relations to environment. This quest for larger contact with reality has its religious value. The religion of the inquiring mind has, in the past, been depreciated as compared with a religion of dogmatic certainty. The impression has been created that the attitude of questioning is incompatible with a strong religious faith. A modern apologetic should make it clear that a reality which is discovered in and through experience, and which, although imperfectly defined, is nevertheless actively functioning in human life, is no less valuable than a reality which is defined as existing prior to and independent of experiences. More and more shall we be compelled to recognize that a faith which is in harmony with the general methods of thinking current today must appreciate the prophetic and vital significance of relative and imperfect formulations of the object of religious quest. We are slowly developing a conception of reality which makes possible the questionings essential to scientific inquiry, along with an experienced confidence in the practical sufficiency of symbolic representations of ultimate realities. 3. The Problem of the Supernatural It has been assumed in the past that any mere natural religion is totally inadequate because of the frailty of human nature and its liability to error. Christian doctrine has thus represented the fundamentals of our religion as having a superhuman source. The origins of man, and of the world in which he lives, have been referred to special activities of God. The means of salvation have been defined in terms of miracle. Christ has been valued primarily because of his non-human, divine origin. Regeneration has been looked upon as a miraculous transformation, rather than as a development of character. The means of grace, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Bible, have been declared to be efficacious because of their divine origin. Thus the validity of Christianity has seemed to rest on the proved miraculousness of its origin and nature. THE MODERN DISCREDITING OF MIRACLES One of the striking aspects of modern religious thought is the widespread departure from the strict supernaturalistic view. Formerly the fact of the presentation of miracles in the Bible was held to be a strong evidence of its truth. Today many of these miracles are seriously questioned, and elaborate proofs of their probability have to be devised. The doctrine of evolution has led us to think of the world in which we live and of the history of man in terms of a long and gradual development, rather than as originating through a special divine act. Attention is being more and more directed to the human life of Jesus, and there is less and less insistence on the necessity of the virgin birth as an element in the value of Jesus for us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper in large areas of modern Protestantism have ceased to be regarded as miraculous channels of special grace, and are interpreted as ritualistic activities with profound psychological suggestiveness. In short, there is growing up a type of religious belief which does not need to affirm miracles in the older sense of the term. Can we draw a line between the natural and the supernatural? The presupposition underlying the defense of miracles is that there is a virtue in the so-called supernatural, which is not to be found in the so-called natural. This presupposition needs to be critically examined. Let the student make out a list of the most valuable items in the Christianity which he knows and loves. Let him then inquire whether these are all located in the realm of the supernatural. He will perhaps be surprised to discover the large significance of the natural in his religious life. 
Again, let him make out a list of the defensible miracles, and let him ask how many of these actually affect his religious faith. Such a practical test would reveal the fact that religious values are not at all identical with distinctly supernatural interventions. There are many items treasured by faith which receive a natural explanation, and there are many recorded miracles concerning which faith is religiously indifferent. Now, since the religious soul recognizes God's activity in all that is of religious significance, faith finds God in the so-called natural as well as in the so-called supernatural. To draw a distinct line between the two realms is impracticable. Emphasis on quality rather than origin. If we are to be true to the demands of actual religious experience, we should give our primary attention to the identification of what is of value for our faith, rather than to the attempt to vindicate non-natural origins. Instead of attempting to prove that the entire Bible has an origin different from that of any other literature, we ought rather to make sure of the value of biblical religion for actual religious life. Before deciding that a defense of a given account of a miraculous event should be undertaken, one should first ask whether the event is of vital significance for faith today. It is poor strategy to prepare an elaborate defense of positions which are of no vital consequence. When once it is recognized that we do not need to draw any dividing line between the natural and the supernatural realm, and when it is further recognized that the question as to whether an event is miraculous or not is of secondary importance, since faith sees the activity of God in all that touches our spiritual welfare, it will no longer be felt necessary to validate Christianity primarily by proving its supernatural origin. We are already accustomed in Protestantism to the valuation of many aspects of our religion in terms of a protest against Catholic supernaturalism. We feel that religious faith is better if we deny that baptism supernaturally effects a change of character. We insist that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper do not undergo any miraculous transformation. We are becoming accustomed to the use of the Bible as a book of religious experience, rather than as a supernaturally produced literature. We are laying more stress on the inner life of Jesus, and less on the circumstances of his birth. Gradually our confidence is being shifted from the exceptional and inexplicable to the normal. It is necessary today to grant differences of opinion concerning many of the miracles of the Bible and concerning the possibility of a supernatural element in connection with some of the factors in Christian salvation. It is apologetically a stronger position to show that religious values are not necessarily dependent on a supernaturalistic philosophy than it is to attempt to assert supernaturalism along all the line. The Real Religious Interest The crucial point in the discussion lies in the desire of the religious soul to affirm the activity of God in the world and in human experience. Insofar as what is natural is viewed as godless, it becomes essential to emphasize a supernatural. But if, as is the case in much modern thought, the religious uplift of man through faith's contact with the unseen is regarded as a natural and normal development of experience, religion may find abundant ground in the natural world for affirming the presence of God. If the abundant rights of religious faith are vindicated in the natural world, the defense of the supernatural becomes superfluous. 4. The Problem of the Absoluteness of Christianity It has been assumed by theologians in the past that Christianity is a religion of absolute truth. 
it has thus been a part of the task of apologetics to prove the finality of the christian system it has not been deemed sufficient to show that christianity has justified itself practically in history one must attempt to show that christianity can never be superseded can we demonstrate absoluteness to state whether a given ideal can or cannot be superseded would require something more than the limited knowledge which men possess Consequently, the affirmation of the absoluteness of Christianity is logically possible only as one appeals to superhuman evidence. Such an appeal has been made in two ways. The character of Christianity has been affirmed to be due to a superhuman revelation which, just because it came from God, was freed from the errors of human judgment, or the truths of Christianity have been identified with the transcendental philosophy of the absolute. It is necessary to examine these two methods of proof. THE CONCEPTION OF REVELATION TESTED BY HISTORICAL FACT The application of more exact historical criticism to the Bible has resulted in relativizing the contents of the Bible. It is a commonplace of modern biblical interpretation that the conceptions of the biblical writers are expressions of the historically conditioned thinking of devout men. As a matter of fact, we have to recognize the temporal and imperfect character of many of the aspects of biblical thinking. To assert the absoluteness of biblical theology would mean, if consistently carried out, the affirmation of the finality of such biblical ideas as those concerning demons, or the place of the Jews in general history or eschatology. But if we admit the relative character of these ideas, what is to guarantee the absolute character of other biblical ideas? Evidently the test employed must be something other than the mere biblical character of the idea. Even if present-day thinking sees no reason to doubt or to modify these other ideas, we should remember that for centuries Christian thinking saw no reason to question the accuracy of biblical demonology. Can we declare what future generations will affirm concerning doctrines which seem to us self-evidently true? THE APPEAL TO A METAPHYSICAL ABSOLUTE is it not possible to strip off all those aspects of historical Christian beliefs which are subject to the vicissitudes of changing experience, and to discover an unchanging substance which may be pronounced absolute? This method of apologetic has been much in vogue since Hegelianism aroused interest in the ideal of an absolute idealistic metaphysics. If we may conceive of historical movements as due to the dynamic activity of the infinite in the finite, we may consider the finite in metaphysical rather than in experimental terms, and thus interpret it in terms of absoluteness. But when one attempts thus to get back of the historical and finite aspects of experience to a supposed absolute, one is compelled to pass from the concrete to the abstract. Is religious faith satisfied with such abstractions? To take a single illustration... Hegelian apologetics admits that the vicissitudes of a single human being, such as Jesus, belong in the realm of history, and as such cannot be treated as absolute. It is the idea of incarnation which is absolute. It is the principle of Christ, rather than the person of Christ, which forms the eternal content of Christianity. Does not this method of absolutizing a concrete figure of history deprive us of precious elements in our religious faith? Are not our affections and our devotion actually stirred by the concreteness of the life and teachings of Jesus, rather than by the abstract grandeur of the principles lying back of his historical life? 
Moreover, logically, this method of seeking an absolute defeats the apologetic aim which it proposes to satisfy. For the persistent apologist may discern universal principles underlying non-Christian as well as Christian history. Thus the content of the absolute in the last analysis must be such as to be applicable to all history. In other words, instead of demonstrating the absoluteness of Christianity as a historical religion, one would demonstrate the absoluteness of certain universal religious principles found in all religions. One could then only say that in historical Christianity these universal principles are more nearly realized than in other religions. But this would be making the Christianity which we know only relatively better than other religions, and it would be confessing that a religion of universal ideas is higher than historical Christianity. There are signs that this appeal to metaphysics which was so common fifty years ago is now being recognized to be unsatisfactory for the reasons indicated above. Do we want to pronounce final any historical expression of Christianity? It would be well for the student, before engaging in the attempt to prove the absoluteness of Christianity, to ask whether he would like to have the Christianity of the present day declared final. Are we willing to rest content with the beliefs and the practices which now exist? On the contrary, are we not eagerly striving to correct some of the aspects of our Christianity which seem to us to be in need of improvement? But if it is not the Christianity which we know which is to be pronounced absolute, what form is to be selected? Has not every period in the history of Christianity seen a dissatisfaction with some aspects of religious belief and practice, and a striving for reforms and advances? Surely there are aspects of New Testament Christianity which have been outgrown, and which no one would wish to reinstate. To canonize for all time disputes over circumcision, or arguments over the parousia, is not to be thought of. Indeed, was not New Testament faith conscious of defects in existing faith and practice, just as we today are conscious of defects in our own Christianity? Has not the attempt to fix exactly the content of Christianity always failed? Can Catholicism make absolute its ideals? Can any type of Protestantism become universal? Even if we succeed in affirming an absoluteness, is it not the absoluteness of an as yet unrealized ideal? And can we be sure that the actual course of Christianity will conform to this absolute ideal in the future, if it has not done so in the course of the centuries lying behind us? Christianity as a Developing Historical Religion the assumption that we may affirm finality rests on the conception of Christianity as a finished system of beliefs delivered authoritatively in perfect form. But with the conception of evolution we have come to see that there is no such static form of Christianity. Christianity is always in the making. Instead of attempting to demonstrate the finality of its content, we ought rather to ask whether the present stage of its evolution is such as to give faith in its future. If it can be shown that Christianity today is alive to the pressing religious and moral questions of human life, and that it is furnishing insight and power for the solutions of those questions, we may well speak enthusiastically of its future. But if we should discover that, instead of yearning forward toward the spiritual conflicts of the coming age, it is trying to surround itself with an armor of defensive dogma, we may well be concerned. In a civilization that is changing so rapidly as our own, absolutes are out of place. A Christianity which can point to its adaptability, which can look hopefully forward to such changes as are necessary in order that it may play a leading part in the solution of our spiritual problems, 
is more defensible than is a Christianity standing rigidly for the finality of this or that doctrine or practice. 5. Christianity and Other Religions A rational defense of Christianity is not complete without an inquiry into the claims of other religions. It is true that this comparative study is not a matter of very vital concern for most adherents of Christianity in Christian lands. It is in the mission field that this aspect of apologetics is most essential. Still, the student should be at least reasonably intelligent concerning other religions in order that he may enrich his religious thinking by a knowledge of other ways of meeting the problems of faith. The Modern Attempt to Appreciate Foreign Faiths Formerly, theologians were too prone to adopt a method of defense which consisted in depicting the failures and defects of other religions while expounding Christianity in its ideal aspects. Such a comparison seemed easily to prove the superiority of Christianity. In recent years, however, the honest attempt has been made to give a sympathetic and fair account of other faiths. This attitude is partly due to the better acquaintance with the thinking of peoples in missionary lands, as missionaries have had opportunity to enter more fully into the life of those to whom they minister. It is partly due to the historical spirit which undertakes to tell the truth about a religion, no matter what becomes of apologetic considerations. The question which arises in connection with this historical appreciation is whether missionary efforts are justified. When we take into account the fact that every religion arises to meet the actual social needs of those among whom it develops, may we not assume that such natural development represents a survival of the fittest among possible religious beliefs? The fallacy of this position is easily seen if we recognize that no religion, not even the Christianity which we know, is entirely adequate to the needs of men. Any religion is constantly in need of criticism and of development in order to reach its full measure of value. A comparison of the ideals of Christianity with those of other religions in these regards will be extremely valuable to the student, leading him not only to a new appreciation of the priceless value of the great utterances of the prophets and of Jesus, but also awakening in him the vision of the possibilities of spiritual development if these ideals are allowed to come into their rights. The comparative point of view will also make it clear that Christianity in mission fields will have a peculiar development due to the stimulus of peculiar conditions of each field. If, in the history of our faith, Greek Catholic Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, and other forms of Christian faith have developed in response to the historical conditions which they met, ought we not to expect that the future will bring into existence types of Christianity bearing the impress of the special cultures of the Orient? If this question be answered in the affirmative, it is no longer a question of proving that Western Christianity is superior in all respects to the Oriental faiths. The real question is whether Christianity is more capable than any other religion of introducing into the religious traditions of the Oriental peoples a spiritual worship embracing a devout humanitarian culture. The answer to this question is not to be found in creedal statements. It is rather to be sought in the actual capacity of Christianity to adapt itself to foreign conditions while maintaining that continuity of spirit and that idealism which have made it worthy of the love and loyalty of Christians in all ages of its Western history. End of chapter 9, part 4